Lord, we come to you this morning with grateful and thankful hearts for all that you've done for us. Uh, Lord, we, we do lift up to you, Pastor Richard and his family, as, as they are away on vacation. Lord, we pray that they are well and that they are resting. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, that you would uh, bless them as, that they're, as they're away from us. Lord, I pray that you would give them a good week together as a family. <clears throat> Lord, I pray for all our families in the church as we enter into this Thanksgiving season. Uh, Lord, we are getting ready to spend time with, uh, with family that we don't normally maybe spend some time with. And Lord, I pray for uh, all of us who will be spending time with family members who aren't believers. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness in this Thanksgiving season to share the gospel with them. And Lord, we pray that, uh, uh, that you would help us to, uh, to exemplify what it is to be grateful to you for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, now as we turn our attention uh, to Philippians chapter 3, Lord, I pray that you would allow your work to do its work in our hearts this morning. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, so if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, we're going to look at the text here in just a second. As I get older, one of the most fascinating things for me to learn about myself is to see how different people in my past, in my life, people that I've looked up to and held in high regard, uh, have affected and shaped my life to date. Okay? And we all do this. Now, we, we all have people, I'm sure that each one of you can think of somebody that you held in high regard, a mentor uh, that has shaped you into the person that you've become today. Right? Uh, we, since the time we were very, very young, before we could even speak, uh, we have learned to imitate people right? that we are around. Any of you who have young children know this well. When your child begins learning how to speak, you really have to start what you say, start watching what you say when, when that child is around, don't you? Else, because you know that eventually at some point what you say is going to be repeated back to you because children learn how to speak by listening uh, to us. They learn how to speak by by listening to us, and and they're going to repeat what they hear. It's just in their nature. As children get older, their imitation of you only becomes stronger, right? It It only gets stronger. They pick up on your sense of humor. They pick up on your mannerisms. Uh, They even pick up on silly things that you do and say. And sometimes you don't even realize what you're saying until it's repeated back to you. Okay, so an example of this, my oldest daughter, Ella, she's two and a half years old, uh, one day looked at her mother and said, hey, babe, (laughs) I didn't realize it, but evidently a lot of times when I'm addressing Laura, I will say, hey, babe, and Ella picked up on that and she repeated it, right? She learned how to address her mother from watching me. Fortunately, it was, that was a a fine example. It's it's okay for her to say that, right? Who knew? Who knew that I said, hey, babe, all the time? Being a youth pastor, the next phase in life is really interesting for me to observe. Right? As students enter into our student ministry here, uh, you know, <clears throat> they're, they're still fairly young. Uh, they still imitate to a, a certain extent their parents and what their parents do and say. But then at some point, adolescence kicks in, and all of a sudden it's no longer cool to be like mom and dad anymore. Right? So they start trying to find this new independent nature. They try to figure out 
who it is that they are and those kinds of things. And it's fascinating to watch because what usually winds up happening is they stop as much acting like mom and dad and really they just start acting like all their peers, right? So they're not, it's not really independence and it's not really this, this new uh, form of self. They're still copying what they see, right? That's why it's so important in your teenage years and in preteen years to choose wise friends because they have a huge influence over you and who you become. Well, this continues on into adulthood. It doesn't stop in the teenage years. It continues on. Sometimes it can be pretty funny what we pick up when we're around other people. I'm going to tell them myself again. When I was in seminary, I had a really good friend named Jason Arnold. Okay, Jason was one of my best buddies uh, in seminary. And uh, Jason was from Texas. Now, Jason was not what you would think of when you think of a typical Texan, right? Uh, Jason was more of a, a hipster Texan, okay? Every single sentence Jason uttered included the words dude and bro, okay? Every single sentence he, he talked, can, it, it contained those two words, dude and bro. So <clears throat> Jason and I would, would be at a coffee shop together doing a Bible study together. And I, I had no idea that the words dude and bro had such a wide range of meanings, okay? So we'd be at a coffee shop together, and we'd be doing a Bible study together. And I would say, hey, Jason, how's your coffee this morning? And he'd say with a scowl on his face, dude. And I would know the coffee's bad this morning, right? Don't get a cup of coffee because it's not, it's not good this morning. Or I might walk in and I'd say, hey, Jason, how's your coffee this morning? And he would say with kind of an upbeat tone, dude, bro. And I would know, get the coffee this morning, right? It's really good this morning. Sometimes when a Bible passage would kind of blow Jason's mind, he would be like, dude, bro. You know, and so he used these words to communicate all different kinds of emotions and all different kinds of feelings. Well, guess what? I come home from one of these Bible studies one time, and and my wife calls me out. She says, Nick, I'm not your dude, and I'm not your bro. Why are you calling me that? Why are you saying those words all the time, right? Well, it's because I, I, I held Jason in high regard. He was a good friend of mine, and he influenced me even in the way that I spoke, right? So, Jason and I became very good friends. The Lord called me out that time, and and I had to watch myself when I was around uh, Jason to make sure that I wasn't calling my wife a dude. <clears throat> well, this type of, of mimis, uh, mimicry, uh, it's not limited to silly points in life like that, right? Actually, uh, this type of imitation plays a huge role in our own Christian discipleship. plays a massive role in our own Christian discipleship. So let me ask you a question. Think about this. <clears throat> Where did you learn how to pray? How did you learn how to pray? Odds are the vast majority of you in this room learned how to pray by listening to your parents or a former pastor, right? Most of you, that's how you learned how to pray. Guess what? Some of you guys, I know what translation of the Bible you use by how you pray. And I'm not going to look at anybody and I'm not going to call anybody's names, but some of you, I know what translation of the Bible you use because of how you pray, right? Because, Because those things shape our language and shape who we are as Christians And that's a good thing. We also have our own little kind of Christian cliches and Christian expressions that we use, don't we? And these are usually things that we hear from a pastor or a a Sunday school teacher or somebody like that or a youth leader from when we were in in youth group. And and we take those things and we apply them to our Christian life uh, and we use them all the time. So I want to do a little experiment here, a little bit of audience participation. I want to see if you guys can complete my sentence, all right? 
The first one, this first kind of Christian cliche. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. That's right. He equips the called. Okay? There's a Christian, there's kind of this phrase that you've probably heard a mentor or a teacher teach you that you've held on to. Here's another one. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. Yeah, there you go. And just one more to prove my point. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship. That's exactly right. See, our Christian discipleship, a huge part of each one of our Christian discipleship has to do with what we learn and what we see from others. And that's the exact point that the Apostle Paul is making in Philippians chapter 3. It's that exact point. Paul is arguing in this chapter that the Christian life is caught as much as it is taught. And the Christian life is taught as much as it is taught. So let's read Philippians chapter 3 together and we'll see how Paul makes this argument for us. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs and look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by spirit of God, by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ." the righteousness that comes from God and depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of resurrection, of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal it, uh, reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me. Join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, uh, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body 
to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If you remember from last time when we studied Philippians chapter 2, Paul has just finished talking about our need to have a Christ-like humility as we deal with one another within the church. We also saw how people are the ordinary means that God uses in order to accomplish his tasks, in order to minister to others within the body of Christ. In Philippians 2, uh, verse 19, Paul makes a transition to talk about how he wants to send Timothy and and this guy named Epaphroditus to the Philippians church uh, to minister to them. And he wanted to send these two men in particular because they're going to provide a good example for the people of the church to follow. In chapter 3, there are three points in particular that Paul wants the Philippian church to imitate from their leaders. And these three points will be the points of the sermon this morning. So let's, let's jump right in. The first thing we'll see there, if you have your notes, uh, the first por- point of our sermon is that we are to put our confidence in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. We're to put our confidence in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. In verse 2, Paul introduces us to a big problem that was going on in the church in that day. It was these people known as the Judaizers. Now, those of you who participate in a Sunday school class that uses the Bible Studies for Life curriculum, you guys, we just got through studying about the Judaizers and who they were, so you know all about them. But for those of you who may not know who they were, the Judaizers were basically a sect of Jewish people who, who believed that Jesus really was the Messiah who was sent from God. He, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah from God. However, they also thought that Christianity, in order to follow Christ and to be a good Christian, that you must first become a Jew, right? Because Christianity is some kind of fulfillment of the, or some kind of offspring or sect of the Jewish faith. And so they believed that in order for a person to really become a Christian, they must first become a Jew, and therefore they must accept the sign of the old covenant, which was circumcision, right? That's why Paul says in verse 2, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, right? So these people were following around Paul and causing great confusion by saying, not only do you need to trust in Christ, but you also must be circumcised to become a part of God's covenant community, right? So, we remember from Pastor Richard's sermons uh, through the Abrahamic covenant that circumcision was the sign of that covenant. and It was the entrance in uh, to the covenant people of God. So essentially, these people were saying, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also must do this, right? And, and it's that extra thing, that, that extra requirement for salvation that they were then putting their confidence in. Right? They were putting their confidence in Uh, in their own flesh, in a mark, in a physical mark of their own flesh. And this is the very definition of self-righteousness. It's the very definition of self-righteousness. Actually, it's the very definition of a works salvation, right? It's the very definition of it. So, Paul's argument from here gets really interesting. If you look at verses 4 through 6, Paul says, if anyone has reason to boast in their flesh and some kind of a mark that was made in their flesh, I have way more of a reason to boast in that. If you think you can put your confidence in your flesh, I have more of a reason to put confidence in my flesh. Look at what he says there in verse 4. It says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in his flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul even knew what tribe he was from. Benjamin, if you guys know your Old Testament history, Benjamin was one of the two tribes that stayed faithful to the the Davidic king. They, They were seen as one of the most faithful tribes of the people of Israel. And it's actually a pretty astounding fact that Paul even knew what tribe he was from. Most Jewish Jewish people in this day probably would not even have known what tribe they were from. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul says, if anybody has reason to put their confidence in anything other than Jesus, I had reason to do it. Right? I had every reason to put my confidence in my flesh. But Paul realized something. That all of that confidence, all of those reasons that he had to put confidence in his own flesh, they were nothing. They did not amount to a hill of beans when it came to the righteousness that he needed for his salvation. That's why in verse 7 he says, Whatever gain I had, whatever merit I had built up on, uh, for myself, Whatever righteousness I had attained for myself in my own flesh, I count it as loss. I count it as rubbish, he says, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul realized that he needed a righteousness that didn't come from himself. He needed a righteousness that came from outside of himself. Look down at verse 9. There are three key pieces to the righteousness that Paul needed. And he points those out. The first thing, he says it comes from God, right? The righteousness that he needed and that you and I need today is a righteousness that comes from God, okay? That's the first thing we see. It's not anything that we earn or gain by our own merit. Secondly, this righteousness is secured by faith, right? It becomes ours by faith. We attain this righteousness that comes from God by putting our faith in Jesus. So how is it that we can get this righteousness from God? It's through faith in Christ Jesus' his Son. The third thing, Paul realizes that this is not his righteousness. This righteousness doesn't come from inside himself. Paul had a ton of reasons to trust in his own righteousness. However, whatever merit he gained, he said, I counted as loss. Paul's righteousness, which comes from the law, was not good enough to save his soul. He needed a righteousness that only comes through Jesus. Now, most of us in this room will probably not be tempted to put our confidence in our Jewish heritage. Uh, I would venture to say that the majority of us in this room probably don't have a Jewish heritage. Most of us in here are probably Gentiles. But we can be tempted to put our confidence in lesser things. So one thing, for instance, the Bible points out that we can put our confidence in is our wealth. Right? Scripture has a lot to say about wealth. And one of the things it says is it is one of the most dangerous things that we could have because it creates a sense of self-security uh, that is damaging uh, to our realization of the need, our need for the gospel. So we can be tempted to put our confidence in money and in our own merit rather than Jesus because we think, if I need it, I'll go out and buy it, Right? That's what wealth can do to our hearts. It makes us feel self-secure when we're really not. 
Another thing that we can put our confidence in is, our, is in our status. Right? <clears throat> there are people in this room who are very influential people. <laughs> Some of you guys are very influential people. Perhaps it's uh, political status, family status. Perhaps you're a successful business person. Paul warns you here, don't put any confidence in your own personal status. Right? Don't put any confidence in that. That's, the, the Bible teaches us that the Lord does not look at those things that the Lord cares about and examines the heart of a person, not their personal status. So don't put any confidence in your personal status. Well, if you're like me, you <clears throat> may not have very much money or you may not have uh, you know, all that much status, uh, but one thing that we can be tempted to put our, uh, our confidence in is our church membership and maybe a denominational affiliation. Right? And this one's a biggie, especially here in the South. I think this one's a biggie, um, particularly in the South because we live in the Bible Belt, right? And the, kind of the, where we are is kind of the buckle of that Bible Belt, right? And so we'll say things like, well, I've always been a Christian. I've always been a Christian. Or I've been a member of that church since before I was even born, <laughs> right? Uh, I've been going to that church since I was in my mother's womb. When we say these things, we need to be careful that, and it really is, it's our heart's tendency, but we need to be careful that we are not putting our confidence in these things. That our confidence is in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Your church membership is a very important thing, but it will not earn you salvation into the kingdom of God. Your identity as a Southern Baptist, a member of Bloomfield Baptist Church, uh, no matter how long you've been a faithful member here, does not buy you right into the kingdom of God. You don't get a free pass because you're a Southern Baptist or because you're a member of Bloomfield Baptist Church. We get that pass through faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. So make sure you're not putting your confidence in anything else other than Jesus' perfect life, death on the cross, and resurrection from the grave. That is the only way by which we can be saved. The only way by which we can be saved. Paul says, beware of putting your confidence in anything other than Jesus. Make sure that Jesus alone is the center of your confidence, of your hope, of your love for other people, and the only object of your worship. The only object of your worship. The second thing we see here, you'll see in your notes, uh, is that we are to press forward and not look back. Press forward and do not look back. I was reading an old article from the New York Times this week and <clears throat> came across an interesting story of two uh, collegiate cyclists. Right? I don't remember uh, what college they were from, uh, but one cyclist's name was Dave Caldwell and the other's name was Joseph Higgins. Okay? And these two guys were in a bicycle race. They were racing each other uh, with <clears throat> between their two colleges. And we're talking about a race here that went on for probably 60 or 70 miles or more. Okay, so this was a long, drawn-out race. Now, Joseph Higgins had been dominating the race since the start. Okay, he had absolutely been dominating the competition. Uh, and he had, for the majority of the race, the vast majority of the race, he had a lead of well over 100 yards, according to this article. So the length of a football field. I mean, this guy was tearing it up, right? Uh, he was winning this race handedly. But in kind of the last leg of the race, this guy, David Caldwell, began to close the gap. 
And that all of a sudden, that 100-yard lead turned into about a 7-yard lead. <clears throat> and, and Joseph Higgins knew that, that David Caldwell was hot on his trail, and so he set his sight to the finish line, and he began giving it everything that he got so that he would not be overtaken by his opponent. But then as they approached the finish line, Joseph Higgins did the one thing that every single coach would tell you, do not do. Guess what he did? He turned around and he looked back. He lost his momentum going forward, and David Caldwell passed him, and in the last moment of the race, beat him by less than six inches. Less than six inches. Right? So all of a sudden, a 100-yard lead, he gets beat by six inches because he looked back to try to find out where his opponent was. Paul is quick to point out in these verses that he has not yet fully arrived. He has not yet attained perfection. His salvation in the eternal sense is not yet complete. He is fully justified through his faith in Jesus, but he is not yet glorified. And in the middle of this argument, Paul gives us this exhortation. He gives us this instruction. He says, don't look back. Forget what lies behind and look forward to what lies ahead. Now, I imagine it was pretty hard for Paul not to look back. <laughs> I imagine it was pretty hard for him not to look back. So let's, let's compare, let's think for a second and compare Paul's life before he became a Christian to Paul's life after he became a Christian. All right, so before Paul's life, we, we've already read it, right? Uh, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Pharisee. He has status. He has a lot of clout. He's probably fairly wealthy. Uh, He's very popular. He's got family and friends and all of these different things. He's a big shot in his religious community. But then after Paul's conversion, after Paul receives Christ, uh, all of that changes indeed. He he loses all of that. And if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you will see that Paul went through, through some incredible hardships. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten nearly to death. He was stoned. Uh, he was left adrift at sea right, for days and nights. Right? He, uh, he was persecuted. He was run out of cities. All right? Paul literally lost everything. All of his clout, all of his status, all of his money, all of that, he lost it for the sake of knowing Jesus. So I bet you it was pretty tempting. I, I can imagine Paul being adrift at sea clinging tightly to the board of a ship that had just been shipwrecked, knowing I might die here. And I bet you it would be pretty tempting for Paul, if he was reflective in that moment, to say, look at what Jesus got me. (laughs) Right? I used to be a big shot. I used to be pretty popular. I I used to be the next guy in line. All of the other Pharisees looked at me and said, we can be comfortable about our future because we got Paul coming up in the ranks. Look at where I am now, floating in the middle of an ocean with no help to come, right? That's where Jesus got Paul. And it's pretty, it's, it's pretty tempting in those types of times in our life to look back and to see what we had before and to long after it. Paul lost all of that stuff for the sake of Jesus. By the way, just as a side note... <clears throat> It's interesting that even though Paul faced and lived through all of those horrible things, all of those terrible things, he still calls them in in 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 11, light and momentary afflictions, right? The guy was beaten to death multiple times, nearly to death multiple times. He was stoned. 
People hated him. They chased him out of cities. He went through shipwreck and sickness and all this stuff. And about all of that stuff, Paul said it was a light momentary affliction. See, Paul is able to say that because he's not looking back. He's looking forward to the glory that is his to come if he perseveres in his faith. So hopefully that gives us some perspective on the daily afflictions that we go through. Why is it so dangerous for us to look back as Christians? Here's just a couple of points that I meditated on. One, I think it's dangerous for us to look back as Christians because we run the risk of becoming stagnant in our growth and discontent with what God has for us right now. As Christians, we should never be satisfied with yesterday's grace. We should never be satisfied with yesterday's grace. The Lord may be working on you to root out sin in your own life, but be careful to ever think that you've fully arrived, that you have fully conquered that sin, right? Don't be content with yesterday's grace. Look forward to today's grace that the Lord provides to you, right? We as Christians are constantly warned in the Bible to press forward, to keep our eyes ahead, to keep growing, to trust in Jesus more and more and more, And if we pause and we look back on our life, we run the risk of seeing everything that we've lost for the sake of Christ and wanting it back, right? That was a risk for Paul. He he had clout and and he had uh, poise and he had all of these different things. He had friends. People looked up to him and he lost all of that. And so it'd be tempting in times of difficulty not to look back and say, I want my old life back. This, This following Jesus stuff is way too hard. I want my old life back. So be careful because looking back can, can make you become discontent uh, and stagnant in your Christian growth. Looking back can give you a sense of self-satisfaction. That's another reason why looking back is dangerous. It can give you a sense of self-satisfaction. When you look back and you see what the Lord has done in your life, because we're all sinful, we can, we can have the tendency to forget that it's the Lord that has done the work. And we can deceive ourselves into thinking Uh, that we have conquered over that sin, right? So maybe before you became a Christian, you were a really materialistic person, right? And since you became a Christian, the Lord has worked in your heart to root out that sin of materialism, right? And sometimes when we look back, if we look back on our life, we forget, hey, the Lord did that for me. And sometimes we can try to take the credit and to say, you know, God's grace didn't do that. I did that. I rooted that sin out of my own heart. So it's dangerous if you begin to think that you had something to do with your own rooting out of sin, with your own sanctification. So be careful not to look back because looking back can give you some sense of self-satisfaction when you should have a sense of complete dependence upon the Lord. The third thing, the reason I think it's dangerous for us to look back is that looking back can discourage us from fighting the good fight right now. Looking back can discourage you from fighting the good fight right now. If we're all honest with each other, if you're really serious about living the Christian life, you know living the Christian life is hard. You need constant grace. You need constant mercy and constant help from God. Living the Christian life is very difficult. And you will face, at some point or another, you will face 2 Corinthians 11 moments in your life. Maybe not in the exact extent that Paul experienced them, but you will face difficulty and hardship. Some of you may be facing a particularly hard battle this morning. Some of you may need an extra special dose of God's grace to you this morning, and you need it right now. 
The danger of looking back is that in this situation, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? It's always greener on the other side. And life can sometimes just seem easier and more simple before we come to Jesus, right? We were blissfully lost and unaware of our own problems and our own sinfulness before we came to Christ. And so looking back can give us a sense of discontentment uh, it, can, it can make us stagnant in our Christian growth. It can make us feel self-satisfied instead of dependent upon the Lord. And it can discourage us from fighting the good fight and looking for God's grace right now in your current situation. So whatever your temp- temptations to look back are, remember Paul's encouragement in verse 16. Keep living the same standard to which we have attained. Right? Keep pressing forward. Press on and persevere because it's the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. The third thing that we see in this text is that we are to choose our mentors wisely. Choose your mentors wisely. Get this from verses 17 through 21. What Paul says in verse 17 can come across as really arrogant and snooty. Let's look at it. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. In other words, what Paul is saying here is you want to know what it looks like to be a faithful Christian? You you want to know what it looks like to walk the Christian life and to do it right? Watch me and do what I do. That, that, That always blows my mind, that Paul would have the confidence to say that, right? Because I have no confidence in myself that I can provide a good example for anybody to follow, right? Because I know my own sinfulness. And when I read this, I think, wow! Right? Paul must have really had it going on. <laughs> he must have had it going on. But how many of us could say this morning, <clears throat> if you want to know what it looks like to faithfully follow Christ, look at me and watch me and follow my lead. That's a hard, and it seems arrogant and snooty, but remember, remember, the Christian life is caught as much as it is taught. Okay? The Christian life is caught just as much as it is taught. Praise God for spiritual mentors that show us how to practically live out the gospel every single day of our lives. And every single one of us in this room, we need that type of mentor in our life. We need the gospel to be lived out in front of us so we can see and copy and imitate. But there's a warning here as well. When choosing a mentor, we are to be very, very careful and wise. Okay, we're to be very careful and wise. And there are a lot of people that we can look up to and they can be very, very dangerous mentors. Paul warns us to watch out for them because their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. These dangerous mentors can even claim to be Christians. They don't have to be non-Christians. They can even claim to be Christians. So, for example, there are a lot of preachers out there who claim that Jesus' primary concern for you and me is our health and our wealth and our well-being. That is a dangerous, false gospel. It sounds good, and they seem like they say a lot of things right, but at its core, it is deceiving, and it is false. So watch out. If they promise you money and health, (laughs) they're probably not a good mentor to follow, right? So be careful and be wise, because Paul warns us that their end is destruction. Lastly, as a youth pastor... I'm greatly concerned for the generation of young believers that follow after us. As a parent of two children, I take very seriously the responsibility that God has entrusted to me 
to pass the faith down to my children. And I also realize that it takes an entire community for me to be able to do this faithfully. I think passages like this encourage all of us to live up to the standard to which we have been called so that we can be the type of Christians that others look up to. We can be the type of Christians that younger people in our congregation can look up to and can imitate. Brothers and sisters, we need to be this type of example because there is a young generation of Christians in this very room and they are watching us. They are watching everything that we do. We will model for them how to walk this Christian life, how to be faithful. They will follow our lead in how we pray. They will follow our lead in how we cherish the Scriptures, how we proclaim the Gospel to the lost, how we grieve during hardship, how we disagree with one another without becoming angry. They're watching how we love each other. Men, there are boys in this very room who are taking their cues from you of how to be a godly father and husband, how to lead your family in the faith. Ladies, there are young girls in this room who will look to you as an example of how to be a faithful wife and mother and how to be a hard worker for your family. Whether you like it or not, they're watching you and they're taking their cues from you. They will follow our lead in how we stand up for righteousness in the world around us. They will follow our lead in how we stand up under trial and under hardship. They're looking to us to learn how we forgive one another because we've been forgiven of so much worse. Finally, they're looking to us to set an example of how to fight against our own sin and how to walk faithfully with Jesus all of our days. Brothers and sisters, let's make sure with God's grace and with his help, we are leaving a good example for them to follow because they're going to follow us one way or the other. Let's go to God and ask him for help with this right now. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we are thankful that we have the example of people like the Apostle Paul. We are grateful, Lord, that, uh, that we have examples like Jesus uh, who, who didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited, uh, but, but rather he emptied himself and made himself humble and took on flesh. Lord, we, we thank you that, that uh, you have provided for us your word uh, and that you have provided for us these words uh, in Philippians chapter 3. Father, I pray that we would not have any confidence in anything that we have done in our own merit. Father, that our only confidence and our only boast would be in you. Father, I, I pray this morning that, uh, that we would choose our mentors wisely. Father, that we would be careful to make sure that we're setting a good example for those who are looking to us. Lord, I pray all of these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.